Good morning, everybody. I'm Associate Pastor Matt Sprinkle, and I'm going to be continuing our series that we began called Terrid Triumph. Over the last several weeks, we have seen the great story that God is telling in human history. We've been encouraged from the scriptures that our God reigns yesterday, today, and forever. This encouragement that we've received and the hope that we have because of what Jesus Christ has done for us is needed now more than ever. When we look at our country and we look at our society, we see all sorts of things that can terrify us. But our God is the God that turns terror into triumph. We saw last week that God planted his kingdom as a mustard seed, the smallest of all kingdoms, and then he grew it to become the largest kingdom on earth. That today, thousands and thousands of people are coming into the kingdom of God, being restored in their relationship with God, given their status as sons and daughters in his kingdom blessed with his spirit, filled with his power, directed by his word, added to the church. It's a glorious story that God is writing through human history. A couple weeks ago during Easter, we celebrated the resurrection of Christ. God raised Jesus from the dead to vindicate him, to overturn and overrule the decisions of men, to tell everyone by that public fact that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords, that everything he said and did is true. And then 2,000 years ago, he unleashed his church to continue his mission, to spread out all over the world and tell everybody that they could come into the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus preached in his earthly ministry. Those were his first words when he started the job. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is here and now, and it's open for all who want to come in. In his kingdom is forgiveness of sins. In his kingdom is eternal life. In his kingdom is power and righteousness, and justice, and peace. And as we learn to trust him, and love him, and obey his commands, his blessing flows into our life, it rolls down through our households, and our generations, and out into the communities in which we live. And as this gospel, this good news of our risen king spreads, the whole world will come to know that Jesus Christ is the one and only Son of God, who has saved the human race from the sin, death, and our enemy Satan, which have enslaved us all our lives. This is what we've been looking at. This is the story we're a part of. And we're going to be continuing today by asking the question, how should we live in light of these great truths? We need to hold on to these truths so that we can understand our times and so that we will not become discouraged and shrink back from what God has called us to do. As we take the lens from the panoramic view, from the the cosmic story that God is foretelling and telling in our time. And as we zoom in, in a more portrait view to the day and age that we live in, there are many things that can make us feel anxious and afraid. Americans all over this country see darkness and disorder, lawlessness and tyranny spreading. And it looks like it's triumphing and it terrifies them. This has led to a massive dislocation of millions of Americans. I recently heard that if you rent a U-Haul truck to move from California to Idaho, it's way more money than it would be for you to move from Idaho to California. So I looked it up, and I found out that if you rent a truck in California and you move to Idaho, it'll cost you $3,600. But if you rent that same truck to go to Ida- from Idaho to California, it's only $500. It kind of says it all. People are moving. They're relocating. They're trying to find some place they can feel secure because they feel insecure by all they're seeing around them. And maybe you felt that way as well. Lockdowns and executive orders, emergency powers, limits on worship, 
assembly free speech and thought. We've seen schools being used as tools for social engineering and experimentation. And the powerful are trying to seize linguistic authority, control over the dictionary, so that they can define what is good and evil, true and false, define standards for normal, justice, and righteousness. I recently heard that Dr. Seuss is canceled. If you read Cat in a Hat to your children, it may be a hate crime. I found out last week that the school districts in Seattle are considering teaching that saying there's one right answer to a math problem may be a form of white male Western patriarchy. Saying two plus two is four, that's forbidden now. Not even math is safe. I've also seen people changing and updating the language we we use in real time. I remember recently when Justice Amy Coney Barrett was being confirmed to the Supreme Court last summer, she was being attacked for her Christian faith. And she was saying, "I, I have never discriminated against someone based on their sexual preference or orientation. And then she was attacked for saying that, for saying that sexual preference and orientation, that these things are choices, that there's any kind of preference involved. And that night, the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary was changed online. They changed the definition of the word preference to fit political correctness. These types of things make us feel unstable. We see this happening, and it makes us anxious. It reminds me of Genesis 3 in the garden. When Satan promised Adam and Eve that if they disobeyed God, they could define good and evil for themselves and be truly free. The powerful today know that if they can seize authority over the language people use, they can control the thoughts that they think, the emotions that they feel, and the way they live their lives. And that includes our children. Some people have bought into this. Most haven't, but some have. We call it going woke. Large corporations, Silicon Valley, professional sports, some universities and schools. But the majority, they see through it. They don't like it, but they stay quiet. They do so out of fear. Many of our neighbors in the areas that we live are afraid, and they're just hoping that it's going to go away soon. What's most discouraging is seeing this is happening in a country where there are over 200 million people who claim to follow Christ. But if there are 200 million Christ followers... And if we are salt and light, then why is there so much decay and so much darkness? The reason is fear. Fear of man and what men will do to us. Fear of death. But what we learn from the scriptures is that Jesus Christ conquered death. That he broke the power of death over us so that we don't have to live in fear anymore. That our God will take care of us and to prove his love and commitment to us, he gave his son. The Lord Jesus gave up his life to give us eternal life. And God raised him from the dead, displaying his power over all the forces that we fear. We don't have to fear. And that's why the scriptures say, Since therefore the children shared in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same thing. That through death he, that's Jesus, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to to lifelong slavery. If you are set free by the Lord, you are free indeed. You do not have to live in fear, fear of man or fear of death. It's interesting because the Puritans are a group of Christians in our past who get a bad rap today in history. But the Puritans were people who feared God much and feared man little. Today we have the opposite problem. Today we fear man much and fear God little. And the result is that millions of people, In America, Christians and not, 
Millions of people are compromising and complying, cowering and complaining. We don't want to do this, but we don't see any other way because if we say what's true, if we stand up for what's right, if we refuse to participate in what we know is wrong, we could lose. Anyone who speaks up or tries to mount a resistance or raises reasonable objections is attacked, targeted. Their families are attacked. Their businesses could be burned. And if you ask basic questions like, why could thousands march in the streets in the summers, but churches could not meet? Why was Walmart and Target open, but small businesses were closed? These these questions will make you a target. You'll be the target of the hatred and the malice. And something that's been very discouraging to me is just how many Christians have piled on, have lent their voice to these criticisms and attacks of their brothers and sisters who are simply raising objections based on conscience. It reminds me of the men of Judah who criticized Samson for standing up to the Philistines. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft rock of Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this you have done to us? Most Christians resolved to just keep quiet for fear of what the woke will say to us or what the powerful will do to us. Recently at the high school where I work, we were ordered that we were going to have to teach a lesson that celebrated lifestyles that God's word forbids. So I wrote a respectful reply, asking questions and raising what I thought were reasonable objections. A few days later, the order was rescinded. It was made optional, which I was happy about. But in the middle of all of it, some of my Christian co-workers sent me private messages telling me that they supported what I was doing and they were grateful that I raised objections, and I appreciated that. But I wrote them back and told them what would really help is if they could speak out publicly. It only takes a few people asking good questions to stop a bad idea. But the terror that my coworkers were feeling, the terror that many Americans are feeling, it's not irrational. You can really lose. You can really be attacked. Things can be taken from you. Your life can be made more difficult. If you fear God, obey his commands, and refuse to participate in things that you know are not right, or if you take a stand for the truth in the public square, for example, you could be suspended, fined, or fired. In school, you may be disciplined, discriminated against, or expelled. Businesses and ministries online can be canceled, throttled, deplatformed, demonetized. These aren't words we used to use, but now they're in our lexicon, thanks to this past year and all the craziness that has happened. All of these things are various degrees of death. Death for our reputations, death for our careers, death of our friendships, our businesses, our prospects. The point of it all is just that. Fear of death by degrees is how our enemies enslave us. But it couldn't happen if the church, if millions of Christians around the country didn't participate or stand by and watch. And why do we do this? Do we live in a country where we'll be murdered for our faith? No, not yet. So why are we afraid to be faithful to God's commands, to live out God's laws, to proclaim Christ as king, to insist in the public square that God's law is what's best, not just for us, but for everybody, and to speak and contend and to share and to teach with gentleness and with respect, but also with resolve? Why are we afraid to do this? Perhaps our hope has shifted. Perhaps our, our hope has shifted from our God to the good gifts that he has given us. Perhaps we're afraid to lose the kingdoms that we've built for ourselves. 
In the Bible, this is called idolatry. And it is a reoccurring problem for God's people. You see it from the beginning of the scriptures to the end. And it's also true for me and it's true for you. This is something that Francis Schaeffer warned the church about. He was a pastor and theologian in the 20th century. And he constantly warned the Western church of the idolatry of personal peace and affluence, making our comforts and the material security of our lives our primary concern. He warned that if we did that, it would choke out our fruitfulness. It would stifle our witness. We would lose our saltiness. And it would dull our light. This is what Jesus said in his parable. He he told many parables about the kingdom, and one of the parables was the parable of the sower. And in this parable, he warns us that if we chase after idols of personal peace and affluence, if we give in to fear of men, we will not be fruitful for his kingdom. The seed sown on the stony path represents the man who hears the message and eagerly accepts it. But it has not taken root in him, and it does not last long. The moment trouble or persecution arises, through the message, he gives up his faith at once. That's fear. The seed sown among the thorns represents the man who hears the message, and then the worries of this life and the illusions of wealth choke it to death so that it produces no crop in his life. That's the idolatry of personal peace and affluence. We do not want our lives to be choked out of its fruitfulness. We want to build the kingdom of God in our lives. But in order to do that, we have to deal with what we're really facing. So what's the solution? What's the solution to our societal problems, to the troubles we're seeing inside of churches all across the country? Is it politics? Relocation? Pulling out of society? No. Politics is downstream from culture. And culture, whether we know it or not, is downstream from religion. It's downstream from what we worship. Our problem is a problem of worship. We are worshiping the wrong things, and that makes us susceptible to be enslaved by fear of man, fear of death, and idolatry of personal peace and happiness. What we need to do is worship God with a whole heart, without fear, dedicating our whole lives to him. This is what's needed. God's word has a lot to say about this. For example, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness, that's us, and has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on God. Fear of the Lord is the way out of this. It is a lack of the fear of the Lord and too much fear of man that has put us in this place that we all see. And it is fear of God that is the way out. He who despises the word will be destroyed, but whoever fears the commandment will be rewarded. Proverbs thirteen thirteen. Because we are not fearing God and not obeying his commands, we are seeing all sorts of destruction in our society. There's a famine in the land, and the Lord warns us about it. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor of thirst of water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. We think that if we just keep quiet or if we compromise or if we go along, that that will keep us safe. The opposite is true. The opposite is true. The scripture says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Proverbs 29, 25. And so with all these promises in mind, with God's word before us, explain to us the situations that we're facing. With the great hope of God's kingdom growing, expanding across history, what should we do? How do we respond to these promises? 
Again, God's word says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Holiness and the fear of God. This is what we need. This is what's lacking and what's required. This is the way out, the way to rebuild, to restore, and to redeem. First in us and our households, then our church and our community, and eventually in time, our nation. The fear of the Lord is the way back. And why is that? Why is the fear of the Lord the way back? Because whom you fear, you serve. It's either Caesar is Lord or Jesus is Lord. The state is Lord or Jesus is Lord. I am Lord or Jesus is Lord. Powerful people are Lord's or Jesus is Lord. If Jesus is Lord for us, that means that his word and his commands apply to every area of our lives. Our faith is not private. It's not just personal. It is public. The resurrection was a public fact. It was an event in history that God wanted all people to know about. The resurrection of Christ is God's vindication that he is the Lord. That means his rule, his kingdom, his law, his will should be done. We're fortunate that our God is gracious, that he is loving, that he wins our affections through his love and sacrifice for us. But make no mistake, our God wants his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we are to be about that work. This is the mission that the Lord Jesus gave us. So let's consider for a moment what it would be like to be those disciples in the very beginning, given this commission by the Lord Jesus. Let's put ourselves in their situation. Rather, let's put that situation in our times. Imagine, if you will, that Christ came back and appeared to us right now. And he told us that he wanted us as salt and light to disciple the nations, starting in our communities. To make disciples in Ontario and Chino Hills and Chino and Diamond Bar. To tell people about Christ, to love them and serve them. To teach them God's commands and his will so that the blessing of God could come into their life. That he wanted us to win our neighbors and add them into the kingdom. And imagine that he told us that he was going to come back in a year or two and he was going to inspect our progress. After all, that's exactly what the Lord Jesus did. Read the beginning of the book of Revelations, chapters 1, 2, and 3. Letters to the churches where the Lord is telling them what he sees as he evaluates their ministry. And imagine the Lord said that to us, that he was going to come back in a year or two and evaluate what we have done with this great commission that he's given us. What would we do? How would we team up together to do it? What in our lives would need to change? What would you have to stop doing? Start doing? How would this great commission transform the way you make your plans? Your calendar? Your money? Your social network? How you teach and train your children? How would we get prepared for this work? Now imagine that the Lord said, you know what? I'll be back in 50 years. You may be thinking, well, I'm not going to be here in 50 years, so I'm off the hook. We may not be, but our children will be. Our children will be here, and they will continue the work on into their generation. The Lord wants them to come to know him and love him and follow him and obey him and to bring his kingdom into their generation. So how would we prepare them? We, as Christians, are to think this way. We're to be prepared to do the work of the kingdom. But there are many things that can enslave us and distract us that can keep us from being fruitful. So how do we prepare? How do we get there from here? How do we build the kingdom so that the fear of God is covering the earth like the waters cover the seas? How do we do it? The answer is we have to prepare ourselves. And that's why the Spirit says 
to the churches through the Apostle Peter this. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the pattern of lusts and evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, for I am holy. That's 1 Peter 1, 13-16. In this passage, we see what we must do to be prepared, to get prepared, to break free from fear and idolatry so that we can be fruitful in our lives and build a kingdom with our lives. The first thing is we have to pursue holiness over happiness. You may be thinking, oh, no, 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 no. Happiness is what I'm looking for. Well, happiness is downstream from holiness. Happiness is a gift that God gives to those who pursue holiness. We give our dreams. We give our plans. We give our goals to God in holiness. Holiness is a big topic. We could do a series on holiness, but holiness at least means that we dedicate our entire life to God. We give it to him. We set it aside for him. We say to God, I will go where you want me to go. Be who you want me to be. I will say what you want me to say. I will do what you want me to do. I give you my whole life. I set it aside for you. This is holiness. A pure and 100% dedication to the Lord. And that means that we give him our desires and our dreams and our plans and our purposes. Holiness is a challenge for us because our hearts as Americans have been trained to pursue happiness. It's good to have dreams. But as holy people, our dreams are subject to God's desires. It's good to have plans, but our plans are downstream from God's purposes. Holiness is also connected to hope. And that's why in this passage, Peter says, set your hope fully, 100%. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. When Christ returns, we will receive our reward. Now, to the Jews and to the Christians in the first century, to whom this was written, it made a lot more sense than it does to us. After all, in the first century, to be a Christian was to live a hard, short life. Hoping in the day of the Christ's return made a lot more sense. There wasn't a lot to hope in in this life. But today, we live in a society of incredible material prosperity and abundance. We have tremendous prospects. This is actually the fruit of the gospel. As past generations came to put their faith in Christ and learn to obey his commands, the culture matured, societies flourished, and we are living as their inheritors. We're receiving all of the blessing heaped up by previous generations. And so in our time, it is very easy to set our hope on things in this life, to set our hope on things that can be shaken and taken away. If we let our hopes drift, we will be unwilling to dedicate everything to God. In holiness. Things we look forward to in life, they're gifts, good gifts. So thank God for your job. Thank God for your health. Kiss your wife. Kiss your kids. Thank God for the good things you have. But do not hope in them. Because if they're taken away, if they're lost, and this last year has taught us that a lot of the things we hope in can be taken away, can be shaken. If they're taken away and shaken, we will be frozen. We will be stuck. And we will be unfruitful. This is what Jesus meant when he said, store up for yourself treasure in heaven. This is what Jesus meant when he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what he's talking about, where our hope is set. So we have to reset our hope on the grace to be given us when Christ returns. 
We're like soldiers. In the first century, soldiers, they sacrificed a lot. They lived lives of discipline. They said no to material comforts and short-term benefit for themselves. Why did they do this? They did this because they were hoping in the reward they would receive from their king when the final battle was won, when the kingdom was established in the land. They knew that then their king would give them their reward and they would enjoy their peace. That is how we are called to live, as soldiers for Christ, willing to make the sacrifices in holy dedication to God. The sacrifice is necessary to pay the price and bear the burden required for God's people in this time. And that means we've set our hope properly. You may be thinking, yeah, but that's, that's hard to do. You're right. And what makes it hard to do? What keeps us from giving our hope to God? The short answer of it is sin. It's sin. Fear and doubt and a divided heart can keep us from putting our hope in God and dedicating ourselves fully to him. And that's why Peter says in this passage, sober up. He says, sober up, sober up from sin. Sin makes us drunk spiritually. Peter says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. We used to be ruled by our passions, bitterness, anger, jealousy, pride, fear, idolatry. And many of those sins have followed us into our Christian life. It's true. But we have to put those to death. Because sin, spiritual sin, makes us drunk. We can't see straight. We can't walk straight. We can't make good plans or make good decisions. We're willing to order our lives around sin the way that a a drunk orders his life around that next drink. People who are addicted to alcohol are willing to sacrifice their marriage and family and career and health and legacy for just one more drink. And sin can do that to us. But in Christ, we have the power to break sin in our lives. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a great display of God's power. How much power does it take to raise a dead man to life? That's the power that God has put in you through the Holy Spirit. He hasn't given us a spirit of fear. The Holy Spirit is a spirit of power, love, and self-control. And with that power, God can break any sin in your life. I know you're probably thinking, I've tried this before. I've gotten all jacked about Christianity. I've tried to make a good run of it. And then my sins, they just kind of pulled me back down. Believe that God can help you and free you. Bring your sin into the light and confess it to God and to your brothers. Don't hide it. Confess it so that you can get help, so that you can be exhorted and encouraged and supported by your brothers and sisters in the church, so that the word of God can be brought to bear, and the power of God can be unleashed in your life, and together we can break the power of sin. That's what it says in the book of James. That's what Christians have experienced for thousands of years, and you can experience it too, so that you can be free from sin, so that you can be free to dedicate yourself to God. That will allow us to do the final thing. Prepare our minds for action. Prepare our minds for action. This means that we have to be something like a shortstop. You know shortstops in baseball, right? A shortstop in baseball has to be prepared for every situation. right? If the ball's hit to third and there's a runner going from first to second, what do you do? If it's a line drive all the way down second base and there's a runner on third, what do you do? right? If the ball's hit to you, who do you throw it to? Shortstops have to be ready for all sorts of situations. They have to be prepared mentally and physically. And that's what we have to do. That's what Peter means when he says, prepare your minds for action. It means that we together work together and plan ahead. That we work together in our marriages and our families. We work together as a church to think ahead and be ready to act well in the situations and difficult opportunities that come our way. 
We can't predict the future, but a wise man can see in front of him and see the danger and the opportunities coming, and he plans accordingly. We are supposed to be spiritual shortstops, but we do this together in the context of the body. And if you're a father or a husband, this is your primary responsibility. You are called to prepare your wife and prepare your family for action, to prepare those people who are in your household for action, to gather them around and to help them think ahead to what's coming and to figure out what it is that God wants them to do. To run scenarios and imagine if this occurs, how we respond. If they say this, what will we do? There are opportunities and there are challenges and there are troubles coming our way. Some that we can see. And for those things, we have to prepare our minds for action. And if we'll do that, God will show us what he wants us to do. He'll give us the courage to do it. If we're dedicated to him in holiness and we've set our hope on the things to come, we'll be free to do it. We won't shrink back in fear. We won't be distracted in idolatry. We will respond the right way. And then God's good love, justice, power will flow through us into the community around us. God will use us to bless many. And to illustrate this point, I'd like to call up or or share with you a testimony from one of our members, Thomas Gersheimer. Thomas is a member of Church in the Valley. He's also a small group leader. He's married to his wife, Shannon, and they have four children. He's been in logistics uh, in the Inland Empire for over 10 years, and he used to be a, a general manager at a, at a company. Now he works at Uline, uh, and he's a, a general manager there. And a couple years ago, he faced a situation where he was being tempted to fear man, to compromise and do what he knew wasn't, what wasn't right. But through the body of Christ, he was encouraged to fear God, obey his commands, and then he saw God's faithfulness come through. So let's go ahead and listen to Thomas' testimony. Hi. My name is Tom Gerstheimer, and uh, my wife Shannon and I have been married for 14 years. We have four kids, aged five through nine. We live here in Ontario, and we've been coming to CIV since 2006, so just about 15 years. Um, We're community group leaders here, and I'm the director of operations for a local shipping company. Uh, I wanted to share an experience that we had of God coming through for us and and really taking care of us during a very tough circumstance at work a couple years ago. Uh, Three years ago, I was a general manager for a logistics company, uh, a different company, and I had just been reassigned to a really tough location. Um, it was a it was a big distribution center that had a lot of problems. It was a turnaround. We had people issues and process problems, and um, our our finances were not good. We were not profitable the way that we should have been. It was a turnaround, and it was it was rough. Well, right in the middle of this kind of year and a half long um, turnaround, we become aware of uh, of an issue where we had lost two hundred and fifty thousand dollars of inventory. And as we dug into it, what we learned was that there was a broken process that had gone unchecked for many, many years before my team and I got there. And uh, it was actually uncovered through this. It was uncovered at, at additional locations as well. Um, but it just got really, really ugly. Uh, lawyers got involved. Senior leaders got involved. There was a lot of visibility. Um, it was very, obviously very costly. And through this, um, my bosses came to me multiple times. We had a lot of conversations about this. But they said, hey, somebody's got to go. We need to show that we're taking action on this. And uh, somebody's got to get fired for this. The, the, the problem with that was that the woman that they wanted to let go was not responsible. She was in the role, but she had not been properly trained. Uh, the issue existed long before she got there, but she didn't have any way of identifying it or, or correcting it. And so I, I told them, I, I can't do that. That's not right. You know, letting her go is not the solution to the problem. So we went back and forth a lot. Well, it came, came down to a conversation on a Friday that I remember very, very clearly. My boss called me and he just said, hey, Tom, on Monday, we need to, we need to button this up. We need to finish it. 
um, are you confident that you're unwilling to let this woman go? And I, I said, yes, I, I am. I'm confident. That's not right. And he said, okay, well, um, I need to just let you know that I can't support you in this and that that decision's not going to play well with the organization. So I, I knew what he meant. And I, I hung up my phone and I went home that weekend and I called Greg Fuller. He's, uh, he's a, uh, an elder here at Church in the Valley. He's a really good friend and a mentor. And Greg has a tremendous amount of organizational and leadership and business wisdom. And he knows and he loves God. So uh, in talking to Greg, I had started to second guess myself. You, you know, like if I wasn't doing this, I was I felt like I was risking my career. Um, I, I felt like I was risking the well-being of my family. And I had really I, I was wrestling with it. And so um, talking to Greg, Greg reaffirmed that it would be completely wrong from God's perspective to let uh, this person go. He uh, shared with me confidently and with clarity um, just how God's values and perspective applied here and reaffirmed that. And, and in the course of the conversation, he said, Tom, if you do right, God will take care of you through that. At the same time, Randy Lanthrop shared with me Psalm 37, 5 through 7, which says, trust in the, in the Lord. Commit your ways to him and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn and the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Be, uh, be still and patiently wait for the Lord. That and the story of Daniel and Esther and David from the Old Testament really encouraged me. So I spent that weekend actually typing my letter of resignation. I actually emailed it to Greg and asked him to proofread it too, and, and, and he did. So I printed it off, I put it in my bag, and I, I went to work that, that following Monday. And just as expected, that Monday my boss and HR came in, and we had a, we had a, a long conversation where they said, you have to fire her. And I said, I'm not able to do that. And, and, you know, through all the back and forth, I said, look, if this is the organization's position, um, then this is, this is my resignation. And so I wrapped up my day and, uh, I thought everything was done and over. Um, and I got a call that afternoon from my boss's boss. And he just said, Hey, Tom, walk me through what happened this morning. And as we talked, he came to, came to see it from my perspective and he said, okay, we will not let her go. And over the next six months, um, one, we not only did we not let her go, but we were able to turn things around. So over the next six months, we were able to, to fix the, the branch. We became very profitable and very stable. Um, I was able to repair the relationships with my bosses. Um, I was even able to graduate from a training program that I had been a part of for a couple of years. So just looking back, even now, I mean, it, it, the, the input that Greg and Randy and other folks at the church had and the way that they were able to speak into the situation and help me with this, was incredibly helpful and encouraging um, at the time. And I am so, to this day, I am so very grateful for their help and support through that. Thank you. Tom is the first one to tell you that he's not perfect, that he struggles like everybody else. But in this experience, he did not fear men. He feared God. He prepared his mind for action. He told his brothers and the elders in the church what was going on, and they encouraged him, they exhorted him from God's word, they prayed for him, and he made the hard call. He did what was right, even though it was hard. And God honored that. He protected Tom. He protected the employee. Tom received honor. The business was blessed. This is how God takes care of us in the middle of the trouble that we face. This is what God wants us to do. This is how we should live. We should live our lives dedicated wholly to God, setting our hope fully on God. We should sober up for sin so that we can obey God. And if we do this, then people will see the excellencies of God in our lives, the blessing of God in our lives. And as we invite them to come into the kingdom of God and to live in the family of God, 
under Jesus Christ's lordship, obeying his commands and experiencing blessing, they can experience it too. This is what God wants to do in our lives. This is what he wants to do in our church. This is why we're here. To invite our neighbors to discover Christ through his life-changing community. So, what are our next steps? The first thing you may want to consider doing is you may want to sober up from some sin in your life. Bring it into the light and get help. Don't hide it anymore. If there's sin in your life, sin in your marriage, sin in your home, sin in your work, sin in your body, sin anywhere, things that you can't break free from, don't hide it. Share it with one of your pastors, your small group leader, a brother or sister in Christ who can pray for you, who can exhort you, who can help you. God will use that to help you break free. Perhaps you want to identify something, anything that's holding you back from fully dedicating your life to Christ. Some sort of idol that you are hoping in more than God. Or perhaps it's a fear that you have. Tell someone. Don't just try to overpower it with willpower. But tell people so they can pray for you. Ask God to change it in you. Allow God's word to speak to you about it. And God can break and change those things. And then finally, look ahead. What circumstances, challenges, and opportunities are coming for you and your household? What is God's will in those things? Help those that you are responsible for. Help your brothers and sisters at Church in the Valley. Work together to prepare your minds and your lives for action. This is how the kingdom expands through our lives. Next week, we'll look at how the kingdom expands through our generations that follow us. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word, which is so encouraging. Your word is a light. It's perfect. It restores our soul. It gives us encouragement and refreshment and hope. We thank you, Lord, that you gave your life for us, that you willingly laid it down so that we could pick it up, that we could have eternal life. We thank you that you've conquered all of our enemies, sin, Satan, and death, and freed us from the fear of death. We ask, Lord, that you would work in our hearts to destroy the idols and help us to reset our hope on you and your goodness to us, counting on you to reward us for a life of faithfulness to you. Father, I pray for those right now who are struggling with sin, sins that are known and sins that are not known. I pray that you give them hope and faith that you can help them break free, that you would give them the desire, that you'd help it make sense for them to reach out to you and to the body of Christ for help. Lord, I pray that you'd help us become wise and prudent, like spiritual shortstops, showing us how to prepare our minds for action. Would you help us see the opportunities that are coming? the threats that are coming, the things that we're facing right now that we need to think through right now so that we can honor and obey you right now. We want you to help us. We trust you and know that if we follow you with our whole heart, if we dedicate our lives to you together, that yes, we'll be blessed. And so we're all children. But even more amazing than that, you'll use us to build your kingdom here and now in our community. And we want to be a part of that. So we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.